We're going to read from the book of 1 Samuel, starting at chapter 17 um, and starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socha and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day... I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now, Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, 
Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will great. Uh, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage, and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, "What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine?" That he should defy the armies of the living God. They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, "This is what will be done for the man who kills him." When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the man, he burned with anger at him and asked, "Why have you come down here?" And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what I have done," said David. "Can I even speak?" He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the man answered him as before. What David said was. Overheard and reported to the to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David sent to Saul, said to Saul, "Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him." Saul replied, "You are not able to go and go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man." And he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, "Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it." Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who, res- who rescued me from the power of the lion and the power of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David. Go and the Lord be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, <clears throat> here at church, we're taking a couple of weeks to look at the life of David in the Old Testament, and uh, we're calling the series "The Relentless Pursuit." And last weekend, uh, we kicked things off uh, by saying that David was the unlikely choice to be a king, and yet he was chosen as the youngest brother. And we come now to a moment in David's life that, even if you know very little about David, you probably know this moment where David meets Goliath. I mean, in the other day, I was listening to the news, and they introduced the story by saying, "There's a real David and Goliath kind of story, right? Thousands of years on, we're still referring to this moment 
It's a true story of battle against all odds, where the underdog wins. It's a story about faith and fear and courage and heroes and facing giants. I mean, I'm surprised it's not a Netflix series, but it is not just entertainment. This story, though happened many, many years ago, has a profound impact upon your life. So let's start where all good stories start, and that's with a problem. The problem is fear. The Philistines, right, were encroaching on Israel's land. They were coming closer and closer, like what the Ukrainians feel with Russia coming closer and closer and closer. Israel is on one hill. The Philistines are on another hill. Now remember, in the Old Testament, God has been telling his people again and again, you're my people. This is your land. I will fight for you. I am with you. I am on your side, and they've heard it and seen it again and again and again, but all that just melts away, all that fades away in one moment as Goliath, boom, 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 comes forward. The camera shot goes from a wide to a close-up of this giant. Have a look with me, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. He was six cubics and a span. It's about 2.5 metres, right? He doesn't have the Guinness World Record for the tallest man, but he's up there. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze, weighing about 5,000 shekels. On his leg, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now, biblical scholars will say all the same thing. This detailed description is very unusual in Old Testament narrative. It's, It's a rare thing. So why spend so much time describing what Goliath looked like? For one reason. They want you to feel what those there present felt, and that is fear. I mean, they could have said a great warrior stepped forward, right? But those who weren't there, particularly men, right, will probably think deep down, if we're honest, oh, I could probably take him. I mean, if I was there, I mean, if I went to a boxing class too, I'd, 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 I'd give him a good shot. No, no, no. You wouldn't. You couldn't. This Goliath was a warrior and a half. The NBA would have loved him, right? I mean, his chain mail alone would have weighed about 60 kilos, and there he is walking around with it. He is well covered. He is well protected. His spearhead alone would have weighed a couple of kilos and he's thrown. Even notice he has a shield bearer that goes before him. It would take an army to get this guy to the ground. But that's not how things work in the Eastern world. They, they would, it was a common thing to get one representative from each army to have a battle. And that's what happens here. That's what Goliath proposes, right? And whoever wins wins their army, and whoever loses, loses their army, and they become slaves. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' word, Saul 
And all the Israelites were what? Dismayed and terrified. I love the Holman translation of that word, dismayed. It goes like this. They lost their courage. They lost it. Melted away, weak at the knees. Their confidence vanished as Goliath stepped forward and opened his mouth. Have you ever been in a moment like that? A moment when you are facing something horrible, someone or something, and you just feel utter helplessness? Where you're consumed with panic, where your world gets turned upside down, where you're afraid to do another day, afraid to get out of bed? See, these soldiers staring at Goliath, they knew what was inevitable, death that their wives and children back home would be slaves. Their whole world, their whole livelihood was about to be destroyed. They lost their courage. And it's not just once, right? What does verse 16 say? For 40 days the Philistine came forward. Every morning and evening he took his stand. I mean, that's the way it is. An opposition doesn't just come once. You know, it comes again and again and again and again. You can say things like, well, don't worry, I'll just suppress it, have a good night's sleep. But you wake up and it haunts you morning and night, again and again and again and again. Now, there's some solutions in this story that try to get you to deal with fear, right? One of them is a positive enticement, a reward. Verse 25 says this, the king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt him, his family, from taxes in Israel. You know that sense where you can overcome your fear if you have a carrot at the end? It's like I saw this the other day at my daughter's soccer game, right? There was a, there was a boy who was very afraid to play soccer. He didn't want to do it. And what does his parents say? If you play for five minutes, I'll give you an ice cream, right? That was overcome his fear, right? And he did it, right? But this is not like that. This is more like taking a kid to Taronga Zoo and saying, hey, if you jump into the lion pit, hug that lion and come out, I'll give you an ice cream, right? You're going to do that. Because what's the point of enjoying things when you're dead? Because that's what's going to happen if you face Goliath. Royalty, wealth, that's great, but no good if you're dead. So it doesn't work. Another way enough we try and look at is we look to leadership when we're feeling afraid. Because we might not have the courage, but maybe they do, and I can kind of borrow some or lean on them. But who's the leader of Israel? Saul. And he is dismayed. He has lost his courage. Now, just to appreciate this a bit more, remember, Saul was not God's choice for the king, but the people's choice. They wanted a king, and they found Saul. And one of the reasons they, they wanted a king, one of the reasons they chose Saul was a couple of chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 8, it says they chose a king to who would go out before us and fight our battles. But where's Saul? He's in the back, in his tent. And nothing about Saul is, one of the things he was chosen because he was a head higher than everyone else. He was the tallest Israelite. So surely a perfect candidate to fight Tall Goliath. But he's petrified. Often we look to leaders for courage and they let us down. 
but he's not only just afraid of Goliath. Saul's actually afraid of what other people think of the fact that he's afraid of Goliath. You know, we have our fears, and then we fear what people think about the fact that we're afraid. And then we do things that are a bit random. I mean, later, Saul gets David to wear his armor to go out to fight Goliath. A bit random. Why does he do that? Because he wants all the Israelites to think he's the one fighting, that he would be the one to go out and fight. See, sometimes we do things in ourselves or we see things in other people. We think, why are they doing that? And you scratch beneath the surface and it is because they're afraid. They're afraid of what people think. Everyone is afraid. You know, my friends, what the biggest problem of Saul and the Israelites were was not actually Goliath. It wasn't the giant. But you know what their problem was? A far bigger giant. Unbelief. It was unbelief that dominated the hearts of God's people. They lacked courage because they lacked faith. That their obstacle was not Goliath. Their obstacle was actually in themselves, their own disbelief. Now, I'm just going to pause myself there for a moment and think, what the heck did I just say, right? Because that sounds like a bit of a Christian cliche, you know? If you have more faith, you have more courage, right? Do you agree? So I'm just going to park that for a moment and come back to it after we look at David, right? So let's look at David. David is about 25 kilometers away on the mountain, uh, Judean mountainside. He's a pubescent teenager looking after some sheep, right? And he gets an errand from his dad to bring the groceries to his three older brothers who are fighting. He's an Uber Eats delivery driver, functionally. And as he's holding the groceries, right, about to give the bread and cheese to his brothers, Goliath, boom, boom, he comes out. Verse 23, and as he was taking them, Goliath, the Philistine, the champion of Geth, stepped out from the lions and shouted his usual defiance and three beautiful words. David heard it. Now, that's not just a comment about the fact that David can hear, right? No, no, no. It is more than that. David heard Goliath's cry, rubbishing God's name. That this thing was not just political, it was spiritual. David stops and he hears the problem. He hears the way in which Goliath ridicules their God. And you know what he does, unlike what every other person does? He stays. He doesn't run. He had every entitlement to run, right? He's just there to deliver some groceries. But David stays. He hears and he doesn't go. You know when someone in your life understands and gets the fear that you have? You know, they listen and, and, and they get it, right? And they don't say, well, good luck with that, and they bolt, but they remain with you. David hears this fear. He hears this threat, and he stays. He's not the only one listening. His older brother's listening. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he 
burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And why, and so with whom do you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know you're conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Older brothers. What are you going to do with them? I think for Eliab, it's a cocktail of a whole bunch of things. He's probably still bitter from the last chapter that he wasn't chosen king and his younger brother was. But he's also genuinely afraid, I reckon. And he lashes out at his brother. He says, you're just here, David, with your popcorn in one hand, thinking this is like a WWF wrestling match, right? And then he says those words, I know how conceit, how wicked your heart is. I mean, imagine getting that in an email. It's an irony here, isn't it? Some of the most hurtful words in this chapter do not come from the lips of Goliath or the Philistines. They come from the lips of God's people, of family. And that hurts. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens, because it does happen. But King Saul also hears. He hears that David's interested in fighting and he calls him into his tent. And then David says to Saul some of the most powerful words in the whole chapter. Have a look, verse 32. It says, Let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. In other words, do not be afraid. I will fight. I have heard. I have seen. I will stay. And I will fight. Don't be afraid. Now, Saul states what everyone else is thinking. Uh, You're small. He's big. You're a child. He's been fighting since he was a child. When it comes to weapons, you've got nothing He's got everything, right? This is like standing before a massive bushfire and you've got a toy water gun, right? You're not going to come off any good, right? This is not going to end well. But then Saul says to David, sometimes when he has fought a lion or a bear, which can I just say is quite impressive, right? I mean, the other day I was out here in the courtyard being freaked out by a rat. I mean, it was a big rat, but I was terrified by a rat, let alone a bear or a lion, right? Now, David highlights this resume of things, not because he looks good, but he brings them up to show times when a bear or a lion has come in and that God has rescued him. That he doesn't have self-confidence, but he has confidence in God. Have a look, verse 37. He says, the Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, and will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. For David, he doesn't have this courage that is self-generated, this raw, cool, calm, courageousness, like some sort of American Hollywood action figure, you know, like, let's go, I've got this, right? No, no, no. What fuels David's courage is his confidence that God is powerful, that God has got it, that he is in control. Was he scared when he faced a lion or a bear or even the Goliath? I presume the adrenaline was pumping. But he knew God was bigger and would rescue him. 
You know, here's the thing, friend. This is the thing about fear. It loves ignorance. Loves ignorance. I mean, what does every American or Brit, when they come to this land, think Australia is? It is the land flowing of what? Spiders and snakes. Right? They just presume they're everywhere, right? And they get here and they think, oh, okay, they're not just hanging off telegraph poles and everything. You know, they're not just in major. Okay. You learn. You know. But, I mean, presume you've lived here for a number of years in this land. When you see a spider or a snake, I presume you get a bit afraid, right? Fear wells up. But if you're a herpetologist, right, someone who works with reptiles, you don't have that fear. You go up, you know what it is, you can identify it, you might even pick it up the right way, because you know more than the average Aussie. The more you know, the less you fear. Fear loves ignorance. And when it comes to David, he has courage because his faith is founded in knowing who God is. He knows how big God is. He knows that he is controlled, that he is omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful. And so when David sees a giant, when everyone else sees a giant, David sees a dwarf. Because for him, the giant in his life is God. And what I love about it, it's not just something David believes, but what he practices. Because what weapon does he take when facing Goliath? Verse 40, have a look. It says this. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five. Five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. All he had was his staff, which is just used for corralling sheep, and five small pebbles. And he approaches Goliath. Goliath, who looks big, who is protected, who is strong, who is supported. And there's David. Small, vulnerable, exposed. And Goliath laughs. I mean, this is a joke. This is ridiculous. David had so little. And you see that, verse 45. David says to Philistine, You come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come you in the name of the Lord. He just had a name. That is what he was relying on, the name of the Lord that would get him through. The story goes on. He steps forward, verse 49, reaching into his bag, taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine. With a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. After 40 days, 40 days of haunting threats, a month and a half of a constant state of fear, all gone in one moment. Goliath was dead. And so was their fear. 
David does something else. He takes a sword, we're told, and then he cuts off the head of Goliath. You know why? I presume because there were skeptics there thinking, well, he's probably in a coma. Is he really dead? I'm not really all that sure. But it's pretty clear after you behead that there is nothing to worry about. He ain't coming back. He is finished. Evil has gone. Can you imagine the relief of the soldiers there? I mean, I like watching action movies, you know, whether it's Avengers or Matrix or Star, whatever it is, really. And it's amazing how similar they are to David and Goliath, because there's two battles going on, but you focus on, on two characters, the good guy and the bad guy. And then, or inevitably, the good guy will beat the bad guy. And in that moment, the music swells and <gasps> the relief. But I just switch it off and go to bed. Imagine if you were in that moment. The relief, the joy, because the giant was dead and safety and joy and hope had returned. Now, here's the question. What's the point of this story? As I said before, this story has actually relevance for your life. In what way does it have any meaningful relevance to you? I mean, it's a great story. That's clear. Now, it's easy for me, and you may have heard other sermons like this, particularly online, which go along the lines of this. David had great faith in God. He slayed a giant. If you have great faith in God, you too can slay giants in your life. No matter the odds, trust God. Go forth and be like David. Now, that sounds good at first. But here's the problem. David, when facing Goliath, had absolute confidence in God's ability. He had perfect, unwavering trust and belief. Even though everything looked in bad, everything looked almost impossible, there wasn't a smidgen of doubt, a smidgen of uncertainty in David. Is that you? It's not me. Right? I get worried, I get weak at the knees, I forget to pray, I panic, I doubt all the time, right? I'd like to be like David. But I mean, look, today's Mother's Day. Let's keep it to even a basic level, right? Your mum, right? You might love it, she might be a great mum. But some of us are scared of our mums, right? We're really worried about what they think. We're a bit crippled by their, their disapproval, Right? She might be a great mum, but we're still afraid in that, and that's just our mum, right? Let alone big giants. Now, I'm not talking about a mother-in-law, right? I'm talking about <laughs> death or life-altering accidents or losing a child or unpredictability of the future or unending loneliness or God's coming judgment, right? Big giants in your life. And to say you're going to face them with 100% confidence and trust, That's like me saying to you, go be like David. It's like saying, stand before a tsunami and me giving you a pair of goggles and saying, just believe, you'll be fine, go. You won't, right? I won't. We'd like to think we're David in this story, but our behavior betrays us. 
You know who we are more like than anyone else in this story, if we're honest? The soldiers, full of doubt, full of worry, hiding in the bushes. That's us. And you and I, we need a hero. We need someone like a David to stand on our behalf and says, don't be afraid. I will fight. And here's the good news, friends. Like David, a young man came from Bethlehem who was willing to stand on our behalf, who, like David, was abandoned by those closest to him precisely at the moment of his greatest battle, who heard the cry of a greater giant, death, sin, and Satan that had been haunting for years, and he did not go anywhere, even though he could have. Friends, Jesus Christ is that hero that you and I need. He is the only one who truly believed in God's promises. He was the only one who ran into the battlefield with perfect confidence in God, who picked up the most unlikeliest of weapons an old rugged cross where everyone else thought that's weak, that's not going to do anything, and he picked it up, and there he paid for sin and death on a hill called Golgotha. And so that you would know that the giants, the big giants in life of death, sin, Satan, and hell are paid for, he beheaded death by not just staying on the cross, by rising again. He not only wants to save you, but he wants you to know you're saved, that you do not have to fear. See, the gospel of David was, do not be afraid, I will fight. But that was good for those people at that time. But Jesus Christ, the gospel is for us, for all people, do not be afraid. I will fight. I have won. I have achieved victory despite your disobedience and failure. And until you know who has won the battle, you will never have true courage. Because what? Verse 52, I love it. There's a change with the Israelite soldiers. It says this, Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines. Where did their courage come all of a sudden? It's not, well, they're like, well, David defeated Goliath. Maybe I could do that next time. No, no, no. It's David has defeated Goliath. Now he can go out. They've seen the victory. And as they ran past Goliath's body, that gave them the confidence. That gave them the courage because the victory had been won. Courage is not something you can conjure up. It is based on knowing that Jesus Christ has won the battle. So in the couple of minutes I've got left, right, let me just going to get practical a little bit more, right? Press in a bit more. Because Jesus has taken out the real giants in our life, it gives us the confidence and the bravery to face littler giants or lesser giants. See, when you come face to face with those lesser giants, the only way you do not lose courage is by not looking at yourself. Don't look at yourself, but look to the victory that's already won, right? So when that diagnosis comes, when that bad news comes and it's life-changing or life-ending, the only way you will not lose courage is look to the fact that Jesus has won that battle of death. He has beheaded death. He has defeated it. 
that you are freed from its power, its sting, and so you are free from the fear of it. The only way you will not lose courage by being constantly consumed and crippled by what people think, by their opinions, their comments, their looks, is by looking back at the victory of one and saying, Jesus, when he died on that cross, he took my sin, he loved me. If I have his smile now, I can endure the fiercest of frowns because I've got his approval. When opposition comes your way and haunts you day and night, injustices that keep you up again and again, the only way you do not lose courage is look to the victory of one. That there he defeated Satan. He bound him the most evilest of all. And though it may feel like injustice or someone is laughing at you, remember what David said, though I walk through the darkest of valleys, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Jesus is on your side. One more thing. David and Goliath, it gives us not only the courage because the victory is won, it gives us the tools to fight little giants. I mean, what weapon did David choose? A couple of pebbles. I mean, it's a bit silly, isn't it? But that's the way God operates. You know, when God says, what does he say? My power is made perfect in weakness. Do you believe that? Or do you still resort to power and wealth and cleverness to get you out of the situation that you're in? We naturally go to heavy-duty weapons. But Jesus is saying, no. Go for the ones that appear weak, because there my strength will shine. Prayer is a pebble that seems weak. Forgiveness, gentleness, kindness, these are pebbles that at first seem so insignificant. What good will they do? And yet the impact will ripple. The power will be shown might because God is at work. You will only pick up these tools if you know where the power lies, and it is not in here, it is with God. Friends, Jesus Christ, he is that hero we need, who has heard, who has come, who has dealt with and defeated the big giants of death, sin, and Satan. And he says to you, do not be afraid. I have fought for you and won. So go and fight those, those little giants that come up day after day. Fight them bravely with courage, because I am with you. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we are a people of fear, if we're honest. And sometimes, every now and then, we have this bravado with this bit of courage, Lord, but to be honest, we are full of disobedience and failure more often than not. We are, if we're honest, more like those soldiers, more like Saul than we are like David. But we thank you that we have a true David, you, Lord Jesus Christ, who stood on our behalf who did not run away but heard and stayed, who ran towards death and experienced hell for us so that we do not have to be afraid because you've won. You have won, Lord. We praise you for that and ask that that would give us the confidence, that would give the knowledge to have faith, to have courage because it's not us that has won but you, Lord Jesus. And as we go and face those lesser giants that will happen this week and indeed every month and every year until we come again, until you come again, Lord, we ask that we would fight bravely knowing that you are with us. For your glory we ask. Amen.